Good afternoon. We're so glad you're with us here today. This week we're beginning a three-week sermon series, three-part sermon series, on what if your children walk away from the faith. Here's the, uh, the road map. Today I'm going to talk about the root problem, which is deception. Next Sunday I'll talk about a key issue for us to address, and that's wisdom. And in two Sundays, we'll go through an example of some cho- of someone whose children did walk away. Now, I certainly hope and pray that it will not be the case for anyone here. But as we look at current trends, many parents are concerned. And well, they should be. And well, they should be. The Bible has a lot to say about raising children. In fact, of what, most of what the Bible says applies directly to raising children. So while there is cause for serious concern, there is even more cause for hope. First, God regards us as his children. In 1 John chapter 3, 1 through 3, it says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. So God regards us as his children. And if you read this passage, it says he raises his children to be like him. So if we, in turn, are like him, we should should pattern our child raising after the way he raises us. What this means is that all that the scriptures say about making disciples applies directly to to even our littlest disciples and vice versa. Um, Let me give you an example. We've been studying Job for 26 chapters now. I hope that's become apparent to you that we are studying Job. Job has suffered terribly, and his friends have come to comfort him. Their basic message is, just do right. They tell Job if he would just repent of his wickedness, God would bless him. How did those words of comfort help Job in his troubles? Yeah, well, they didn't help him at all. In fact, at this point in the book of Job, Job is even more honked off than he was when all that bad stuff happened to him originally. It didn't help at all. Now, I hate to put it this way, but have any of you told your children that if they just stop being naughty, hitting their brother, aggravating their sister, not sharing their toys with other kids, you wouldn't have to spank them and then things would be much better for them? Well, I'm sure you have. But have you also taken the time to understanding what is happening in their hearts and help them to deal with that? Let me put it to you this way. Are you raising little Pharisees or are you raising children of grace? One of the big problems that I see among evangelical Christians is a real tendency to raise little Pharisees. How would you know the difference between raising Pharisees and raising children of grace? We'll try to talk a little bit about that. 
Consider also this, that Job's biggest struggle was to understand God in the middle of his sufferings. This will also be your child's greatest suffering, struggle. I'm sure there are times when your children need a spanking. God certainly gave Job the spanking of all spankings. Was God punishing Job as his friends repeatedly said? No, not at all. God was used Job's sufferings to create a teachable moment in Job's life so that God could reveal himself more deeply to Job. We get to the end of the book of Job, which we're not quite there yet, and and Job says that, he, that now he sees God and repents in dust and ashes. And that's quite something, because in the very beginning of the book, he was described as the most righteous man of the East. And he needed to come to know God better. So you should discipline your children not for punishment, not to try to somehow right the eternal scales of justice, but you should do it in order to help reveal what is wrong in their hearts and to help them know God more fully. And finally, if you don't have children currently, this still applies to you. These principles are how God delivers us from our sin and changes us into God's image. It's not really any different. Also, they are how you can help others become disciples. But perhaps you don't really know Christ yet. If you don't, let me encourage you to come to him. You will find that he is the father that you've always needed and longed for. You will finally be home. So deception, the real problem. That's uh, Roman number one on your outline. The real problem with our kids is that they are like us. They are deeply, deeply deceived. And we don't like to face that, but that's the way it is. And um, three verses here under point one. The first is under worse than you know, Jeremiah seventeen nine. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah seventeen nine. Here's the bad news. We need to know it if we are going to deal with it. First, our children's hearts are corrupt, deceitful above all things. Now, I know that's hard to accept. You get that little cute little baby, you know, in your arms, and they, you know, babies make random faces, and they smile at you, and your heart just melts, right? And it's really hard to realize that they are as deeply deceived as we are. Second, they are so sick. Well, wait a minute. The the verse actually says they're deceitful above all things. So let me just ask you, how deceitful is that? The human heart is the most deceitful thing on the planet. Second, they are so sick, we really cannot understand it. Look at the verse. That's what it says. Do you understand your own heart? Or are you like Paul in Romans 7, that when you want to do right, sin lies close at hand? Okay, that's the first verse. Under uh, deception, the real problem. B, it's a hopeless problem. 
John 8, 44, you are, of, are, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Ouch. I thought Jesus was a nice guy. He's telling it like it is. Apart from the work of God's spirit in our hearts, regenerating our nature, it is hopeless for both us and our kids. The good news, the gospel, is that God really would rather die than leave you or your kids outside of his kingdom. And that's fact. He did it. So we are helpless to help ourselves, but the Lord is all the help we need. And finally, point C, place to our weakness, 2 Corinthians 11.3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We and our children are susceptible to deception. We shouldn't panic when it happens. Expect it. For now, hang on to the next section, and we'll get to what we should do. So just in in summary here, three points about deception. It's worse than we know. On a human level, it's a hopeless problem. And three, it plays to our weakness. It plays to our weakness. Deception is a terrible trap that we have all fallen into. The gospel is the answer, but getting out of the trap will not be easy for us or for our kids. It will take a miracle. It will also require all of our best efforts if we are to be like him when he appears, as John, 1 John 3 describes. So how did we get in this mess? Where did deception start? And that's Roman numeral 2. Deception begins in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13, I'll read that to you. Now the servant, serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the servant, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Boy, a real stand-up guy, isn't he? Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The servant deceived me, and I ate. 
So Eve claims that the servant deceived her. How did he do that? Okay, well, deceit always involves hiding. An example is the stage magician who's waving one hand in your face saying, look, nothing up my sleeve all the time. He's got his hand in his other pocket moving things around, you know. And uh, and then he, he holds up this cup that's got something in or a hat that, uh, that something comes out of. And you've been looking at the hand up here and you never watched him put that stuff in there. <clears throat> so that's actually one of the uh, the very best ways to deceive people is we uh, we get people to look at one thing while we uh, we get and and we get them looking at the wrong place so that we don't see what they're doing this is called indirection which is a form of hiding another example would be your kids let me ask the parents what it means if your kids are in the next room playing and you haven't heard them in a while that means they've occupied themselves with really good stuff. And for once in your life, you don't have to go in there and check on them. <laughs> what it means is you better get your rear in gear and find out what's going on because there's probably nothing good. This is also a form of hiding, just being quiet. How does Satan hide here? He hides right out in plain sight. That's the best way. Satan asks a question which on the surface seems legitimate. Verse 1, did God actually say? He starts out by getting Eve to question God. And then he goes on to sow a little doubt in Eve's mind. Verse 4, you will not surely die. And he follows with a half-truth in verse 5. You will be like God. You know what? And that was actually true. What he didn't tell her was that neither she or Adam would be able to bear the burden of being like God. We were not made for that. And and so Satan tempts them to do something that he knows will destroy them. And sure enough, it did. We actually have a sense of right and wrong. What we lack is the ability to actually be right. Ever seen that in your life? You're sure you know what's right, and then you find out, nope, that was wrong. So Eve seemed to make her decision alone. She saw that it was good, and so choose, chose to do wrong to get good. <laughs> Let me say that again. She chose to do wrong to get good. So anybody see anything wrong with that reasoning? seemed right to her at the time. Clearly, Eve was right. She was deceived. And as I implied in this, Adam's intervention might have redeemed the whole situation. Dads, remember this. God knows what has happened. Eve gets a lot of blame in this situation, but dads, remember, if Adam had been on the job, the whole thing could have been stopped in its tracks. And in fact, that next verse, in verse 6, it should, what it should read is, and the snake died. Right? So um, this, this um, section could actually be entitled, Adam Falling Down on the Job. So God asks them, what's happened? 
Why is he asking that? Do you think God doesn't know? It's because he wants them to talk, to know what they should be. He wants them to admit what has happened. He knows what's happened. So God asks Adam first because he holds Adam responsible for the garden. If Adam had not neglected his duty to his family, the scriptures would read differently. So Satan was able to deceive Eve by working in the shadows. Deception and hiding go hand in hand. This is the start of mankind's problem. This is our problem as well. Our sin and our attempts to hide it, it's also the root of our kids' problems. So we have seen how our deception and our children's is worse than we know, that apart from Christ it's a hopeless problem, and that it plays to our problem. In this section, we, sh- we saw that deception began at the beginning. And now we're going to see just what God's plan is to do about it. Deception, God's promise to roll it back. Now, this is the story time. I'm going to tell the story. So it'll be, a, when I first tell it, you'll be saying, what does that have to do with anything? And after a while, we'll connect things up. <clears throat> I'm sure that uh, nobody here today was, except for uh, Bonnie's mom, was alive when World War II started. Um, Some of you may know this. Actually, her birthday is Pearl Harbor Day. Only hers was considered, when she was born, was considerably before Pearl Harbor. World War II began for the United States with the greatest defeat ever suffered by the U.S. Navy, Pearl Harbor. Most of the capital ships of the Pacific Fleet were sunk. Many military people expected an invasion of Hawaii, followed by a Japanese landing in San Francisco. Things looked that grim. Actually, at that point, the Japs could have done it. It's pretty scary. A lot of people don't know this, but the Navy had actually done some strategic planning before the war to determine how they would defend the Philippines in the event of war with Japan. It was called the Orange Plan. They had actually figured it out in detail how they would do it. They knew that the Japanese would be able to overwhelm the defenses and take the Philippines. They calculated it would take six years for the U.S. to build a fleet and fight its way across the Pacific. But that assumed an intact fleet to start with. Pearl Harbor changed everything. Nobody could even guess how long it would take after that. And if you know your history, in the actual event, while fighting a second war in Europe, but fighting almost completely alone in the Pacific, three years later, at the Excuse me. At the Battle of Lady Gulf, those sunken ships from Pearl Harbor steamed in the line of battle and took out the Japanese fleet. It was the last great battleship of history, battleship battle of history. And those sunken battleships took them out. Half a year later, Japan surrendered to the United States. It's one of the um, amazing things in our history. 
that we just forget about. Now, here's how this ties in. What's, what's one lesson you should learn from that? That is, that it's a really bad idea to start a fight with your greatest enemy by deception. That was a sneak attack. How did the U.S. take that? <laughs> I mean, there were people that were real mad. The, the country went from neutral to, yeah, not neutral real quick. <clears throat> if you do that, you are likely to make your enemy mad. The U.S. was certainly angered. Let's see how God responds to Satan's deception. Okay? First of all, he pulls Adam and Eve out of hiding. In verse 9, he calls out to Adam and Eve when they are hiding. And then second is that he tries to understand what has happened. Of course, he knows what has happened, but he asks so that Adam and Eve will know that he knows. Okay? He wants them to confess it. He gets Adam to admit what he did and admit that, and he wants Eve to admit that she was deceived. So the first step in rolling deception back is to get the parties involved to own up to it. Right? The second step is he actually begins his plan for redemption. In verse 14, you need to realize that at this point, God is really, truly honked. Satan has attacked by deception. He has wrecked God's perfect creation. He's about as angry as God gets. I don't blame Adam and Eve for hiding. And in verse 14, he curses everything in sight. He curses the snake. He curses childbirth. He curses the ground. What doesn't he curse? He doesn't curse Adam and Eve. That's just staggering, isn't it? (laughs) This is just so remarkable. In the midst of his completely justifiable anger and cursings, he gives the first promise of redemption. In verse 15, the head of the snake will be bruised. The snake will die. He also reveals that Jesus will pay the cost the the offspring of the woman's heel will be bruised. Then in verse 20, they've made fig leaves for themselves. I mean, they're hopeless. Tomorrow morning when you get up and you go to get dressed, just get some fig leaves and try to make clothes. The result is going to be sad. uh, You're just going to be... I, I doubt you'll even go outside the door with that just fig leaves on. It's just not... I don't want to be there when you try it. This is the second promise of redemption because God made clothing for them from animals. And just as those animals had to die to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, so Jesus will die to cover our guilt. So the second thing uh, that God does is he begins to implement his plan for redemption. He gives two solid promises. And then the third thing is that he is faithful to his promise of dire consequences. In verse 24, he drives them out of the garden to experience death and to learn the narrow gate. In other words, this is not a punishment for their sin that's going to make up for having sinned. 
This is where he starts implementing his plan to wake us up, to teach us, to change us, to mold us into his image. So here's the summary. We have seen that God had an orange plan to defend his children. Satan thought he had wrecked God's wonderful creation, but God has used it and is continuing to use Satan attacks to demonstrate his love and to demonstrate that his grace knows no limits. God doesn't have to fight a war across the Pacific. He has a much more difficult problem to deal with. He must lift the veil of deception that covers our eyes and the eyes of our children. He must take out our hearts of stone and replace our hearts with a heart that beats in sync with His. Now that's a challenge. In fact, that's impossible, but it's true. All of this is God's amazing grace. God, Grace must not be just a doctrine we believe, but it is the essential method of walking with God personally, of ministering to others and raising children. So you've heard of the World War II poster with a guy in a top hat and, and uh, dressed up as Uncle Sam. And what does the poster say as he's pointing his finger right at, at, out of the poster? What does it say? Uncle Sam wants you. All right. So the Lord wants you. Deception. How can you help? That's point four. It's not about punishment. If all we do is make them do right, they will become little Pharisees. That's probably not what we had in mind. It's about dealing with deception. It's about helping them to repent, to come out of hiding and admit what they have done and to trust his redemption. You can make kids sorry with just a little punishment. But producing repentance is what's critical, and punishment alone is not enough. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he's talking about a letter that he had written to them that had made them sorry because he was really telling them, telling them what it was. What it, yeah, he was telling them like it is. And in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, he describes their responses. And he says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So if God has to work in our lives to allow suffering for us to repent and avoid eternal death and rather spend eternity with Him, that's a grief that produces repentance that leads to salvation. That's a grief that is totally justified. If all that happens is worldly grief, where we're sorry we got caught and we wish we didn't have to get caught again, that's useless. It accomplished nothing. We'll just do it again and have to be punished again. Um, and, and, it's, and it's interesting. Uh, even secular people read, uh, realize that. Uh, I don't know if you know it, but the the, uh, the the U.S. has prisons that are called supermaxes. Are you familiar? You've, you've heard of that term? And they 
They put people in there for whom there is no hope that they are ever going to change. And they have figured out how to set it up such that um, they will never, ever even have the chance to ever harm anybody again because these people are really sickos. And you just read about that in there, and they are treated as humanely as possible. And it is utterly, utterly miserable. So, what's God's alternative? Put everybody in supermaxes? No, He tries to, to help us come to repentance. Okay, particularly in your children. For younger children... The key deception that you have, that you need to deal with is that they must give in to their feelings. Little kids hatch out of the, the, the womb thinking that their feelings rule the world, right? And they have to figure out that they are not the center of the universe. Now, I'm not saying that feelings are bad. But they are to be our servants, not our rulers. Certainly, take care of their needs. Make sure they have food, give them a dry diaper, get some, help them get a nap. But also help them to learn that they are not the center of the universe. High self-esteem is not the problem. And the studies have shown where the people with the highest self-esteem are. They're in prison. They think they're the center of the universe. So for younger children, the key thing that they need to, to learn is that they don't have to give in to their feelings. It's not going to kill you to wait five minutes for dinner. For older children and adults, the key deception is that something other than Jesus is the answer. Matthew 6.33, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, And all these things will be added to you. Questioning is not bad. It's how they learn. Encourage it, but help them to work out for themselves that Jesus really is the answer. Just like Job had questions, so were your children. Job eventually came to know God better than ever before. Help your children through their questions to know God better. Uh, When our kids were of high school age, they, there was a Sunday, one Sunday school teacher that didn't wait for them to ask the hard questions. He asked them. And uh, I've always felt like that was really, really a good thing. Because as they worked through all those hard questions, they came to good answers. The worst thing that can happen is your your, your child starts asking the hard questions like, Mom, Dad... Does God really exist? You know, I don't even know that he really does exist. Um, You know, this Christianity thing, I kind of think I'd like to investigate some other religions, see if they're not really the answer. And, of course, Christian parents, when these things start coming up, we go, oh, no. Actually, they, they are really good because we have really good answers to these things. So let's let's work through those questions with them. The uh, and then the the fifth thing I wanted to mention that are things that you can do to help is the hope that many parents have of sparing their children from suffering is a vain hope. The real hope is that God will use even suffering for good. 
Everybody goes through hard times. The question is not whether or not you have hard times. The question is whether or not you learn to deal with it biblically. I'll tell you another little story. Um, When our kids were very small, there was a Dairy Queen down on Calder Avenue, or Calder Alley. And uh, so we would stop by there often uh, on the way home, and we would pick up a bag of Buster Bars. Well, at least we'd get Buster Bars for Bonnie and I. The kids would get Dilly Bars. <clears throat> and uh, Calderway was very convenient, and so we would stop there. And this, and, and um, on this night when we went down there, there were a couple of guys that were, as far as I could tell, pretty pretty stinking drunk. And um, I parked the car, and at first I was kind of nervous about getting out, and I kind of looked at them and thought, oh, man, those guys are so drunk that the worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to puke their guts out. But uh, I noticed as I walked by them, I locked all the doors, had all the windows up, but um, the, the one guy was, was, uh, was so drunk that, uh, that he couldn't even stand. And um, he, would, he was standing on the sidewalk, and he would fall, and actually he'd fall right on the curb. I mean, it was like, ow, you know? And he was so drunk he didn't even know it, that he was hurting himself. The second was a little less drunk, and he was just barely enough drunk to help his buddy get start partially stood up, and then his buddy would fall down again and pull them both down. And they just stood there repeatedly injuring themselves on the curb. Well, I was in Dairy Queen getting the, you know, stuff to take home. Well, I came out of the Dairy Queen, and guess what was sitting plastered on the back window of our car? Three little faces, right? Watching this. And you know what? We had a fantastic conversation with our kids multiple times about the folly of drunkenness. And so we think that we're doing good by sparing our children from any exposure to anything like this. And I'm not saying I go out and I look for, you know, bad things to show my kids. But what I'm talking about is is that we use the experiences of their lives and we talk through it with them to help them understand what God is doing. So we've talked about how the real problem is deception. It began in Genesis 3. And right away, God began his plan to roll it back. And what he started in Genesis 3 is still the plan we are working on. Helping our kids to come to grips with the deception that rules in their hearts and learning how to turn that over to the Lord. The orange plan in World War II was for six years. God's plan has taken thousands Realistically, we should expect God's plan in our lives and in the lives of our children to take the rest of their lives. So let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for teaching us. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. Father, thank you that um, when our forefathers fell into sin 
and rebelled against you, that that was not the end of your plan for humanity, but rather it was the beginning. And thank you, Father, that you have continued to show us your love and faithfulness and mercy and grace. And yes, Father, there are consequences for sin in our lives, but you are at work in our lives and in the lives of our children to mold us into your image, uh, to take us home with you, to experience joy and peace and salvation forever. Father, help us to look to you as we go through the hard things of life and help us to learn the lessons you have for us. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.